and welcome to the Hotkey Podcast. I'm your host, Isabel Taylor, and this month we have some amazing behind-the-scenes peeks into the publishing industry and also into literary festivals, as Kate Manning speaks to Liz Vater, the founder and director of the Stoke Newington Literary Festival. Sophie McDonnell takes us behind the scenes in the book design department. And finally, we are sharing with you the first chapter of Ray Bearer by Jordan Ifueko, narrated by the wonderful Maruche Opia from May I Destroy You. First up, I have the pleasure of introducing Kate Manning and Liz Vater here to speak to you about Stoke Newington Literary Festival. Hi everyone, I'm Kate. I am the Sales, Marketing and PR Director for Hotkey and today I am pestering the brilliant Liz Vater into talking to us all about literary festivals. Hi Kate. Hi Liz, how are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. Excellent. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Good, good, good. I must admit we are sitting in Liz's garden, cups of tea and Mildred the Litfest dog is here. So um, any interjection... Blame Mildred. Yep. So basically, Liz, you set up the brilliant Stoke Newton Literary Festival ten years ago, and it would have been its tenth anniversary this summer. It would have been a cause for a huge tenth birthday celebration this year, but unfortunately, that wasn't to be. Certain things got in the way. Certain things did get in the way, Catherine Manning. So what we're going to talk about is basically <laughs> why you set up a lit fest, how it's going, how it's changed over the past ten years, and how you, as someone who organises book events, mm-hmm. sees the future for them given the whole covid situation cool well the story of the festival started when i was going around other literary festivals with my husband who's a writer <coughs> pete brown pete, pete brown, brown. Uh, do check him out at all your local independent bookshops and we pitched up in henley on thames for an event and it was lovely it was a nice day and i picked up a program and i was leafing through it and i just had one of those light bulb moments and i thought why on earth isn't there a literary festival in Stoke Newington, which is where we live, obviously, and which has got this amazing literary background, it's got this incredible political history, and of course, once I'd had that idea, it refused to go away. And I suddenly realised that if it was going to happen at all, probably I was going to have to do it. So I mulled around the idea, and I did all my list-making, and... um, and I talked to Joe at the Stoke Newington Bookshop, who is now obviously a great friend of ours, and to our local librarian. I had talked to lots of people, and I think if anyone had said, what a rubbish idea, I probably would have thought, yes, you're absolutely right, let's not bother. And every single person I spoke to said, what a brilliant idea. So 10 years later, we are running this kind of incredibly successful, very popular community event. And it's been a real whirlwind. It's been fantastic. Now, I have to admit here that I do actually have a certain bias towards you do have a certain the bias. Stoke Newton Literary Festival because I do help out on the kids' side. Because in year two, so the first event... Um, the first festival uh, was great, and we had kind of thirty events. And we had China Mayville. We had, had Tony Ben. We had Tony Ben in the first festival. Shafi Corsandi, Stuart Lee. Plus we had lots of. Anyway, it was a great festival, um, and I had totally and utterly forgotten to organise anything for kids, frankly. And so in year two. I remember getting an email from Catherine Manning, (laughs) yours truly, and a mate of hers, who took me out for the most ridiculous numbers of bottles of wine. It worked. It did work, and persuaded um, me that they should run the literary, the kids' part of the literary festival. And you've been doing that ever since, haven't you? Ever since. So yes, this would actually, yeah, this would have been my ninth ninth anniversary. Ninth anniversary, yeah. Festival. Yeah, and what's been fantastic about it is that the kids, the kids' part of it, not only runs along every festival weekend, but thanks to you, we've got the most fantastic schools outreach program thank you very much and yeah it's just taken off hasn't it you know obviously this is a podcast for about YA and teen yeah, books yeah, yeah. 
and actually that's the one area we've found quite difficult because really how do you difficult. get teens you know people in their, their late teens early 20s along to litter events but what we've found over the years is they come along to the adult ones they do come along to the adult ones and I think a lot of that is your programming because you don't just do sort of this highfalutin no. you know showy offy stuff there's everything is about the community the whole event is led it's all about the community yeah and it's about the issues that the community is interested in so we've done things on Windrush we've done stuff on trans rights we've done stuff lots of feminism stuff and I think that broadly attracts people who are interested in whatever their age and we've always said haven't we that based in the middle of London teenagers in London have so much else they can do it's probably different. I think you probably went to Hereford or whatever. Kids might be taken along by their parents, but it's very different here. Absolutely. I think that, I mean, the one festival I thought was absolutely brilliant idea for programming was when it was that we were celebrating punk. Yes. And yes. it was the summer of the was it 40th anniversary. Yeah, that's right. Allegedly 40th punk anniversary. In London. Yeah. yeah. And you set an uh, event about grime. Because obviously. Yep. For those who don't know, Stoke Newington is in Hackney, East mm-hmm. London. Mm-hmm. Um, as Liz said, we've got a very, very varied, mm-hmm. wonderful, wide literary history. Mm-hmm. Mary Walsencroft had a school, a girls' school, just down the road, five mm-hmm. minutes down the road. Uh, Anna Letitia Barbold, yep. poet, and poet. actually allegedly the first person to write a children's book, the first person to have a children's book with larger type so kids could read it. Yes, that was fascinating. You found that out. And she, she, um, there are lots of roads around here named after her, and she's buried in the local cemetery. Yeah. Daniel Defoe wrote Robinson Crusoe here. Uh, Eric Walrund. Eric Walrund who's a really interesting um, Harlem Renaissance writer who I think ended up dying here rather than living here, which was slightly unfortunate. Uh, but we looked at we one can of his claim books. Him. We can claim We claim everyone, we don't claim we? Him. Let's face it. Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe, He went to yeah. school here for uh, an entire year. He did. He's one of ours. He did, he did. Um, but it's, going back to the grime thing, mm. so obviously, based in East London, mm. you know, the, the home of grime, and the programme was around this direct link between punk and the DIY culture of punk yeah. through to the <clears> DIY culture of grime that's happening in kids' bedrooms, it's happening on yeah. the streets and in the local estates. Yeah, and all the things that drove punk, which was kind of um, dispossessed young people, um, kids living in poverty, that kind of thing, uh, is absolutely still living in Hackney, and so there was a direct link between that really exciting DIY punk culture, as you say, and what was happening all around Hackney. It's fantastic. And I think we did an event the year after that, which was about grime, music and millennials. So it all kind of brought the whole thing together again. And again, the music strand we've got, frankly, appeals to anyone. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that is the very interesting thing about... It's known as Stokey Lit Fest. If we start going about Stokey Lit Fest, <laughs> yeah. it is the same thing, I promise. And in fact, if anyone wants to follow us on Twitter, it is at Stokey Lit Fest, which is S-T-O-K-E-Y. Lit Fest. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about the Stoke Lit Fest is it isn't your ster- well, we don't think, and it's been classed as not your stereotypical literary festival mm-hmm. because yeah. uh, we have wonderful, wonderful <coughs> authors talking about book winning books, and you know, we have, yep. but again, it is much more about music, um, it's about beer. So the thing about Soki Lit Fest mm. is it is much more inclusive in a way than just a sort of, it's not just about your book of winners. And do you know, before I set up, this is ridiculous, before I set up the festival, I'd never been to another literary festival. Really? No, no, absolutely not. Because I used to open the programmes and there wasn't anything that really appealed to me. It was things, you know, and I'm over, I'm oversimplifying it, but lots of kind of retired colonels doing their memoirs books I wouldn't necessarily read so when I set the festival up I was actually working in advertising and PR and I used to say to my colleagues sometimes you know what are you reading at the moment because I've always been such an avid reader and they'd say oh I don't really read books and I couldn't get over it I couldn't understand how really clever thoughtful people weren't reading more so when I set the festival up I vowed that as well as doing great literary stuff if you were interested in music or football or yoga or travel there'd be a way into the festival and you'd be able to find a book about it um, and you'd be able to find something that really interested you 
So yeah, I've never been to the literary, another literary festival. I have now. <laughs> Not mad. But it, it was interesting also that, um, obviously you sang about talking to Joe at the local bookshop yeah. at Stonington Bookshop yeah. and how um, working with the local indie bookshop mm. has become integral to the festival. So we're very lucky that they, you know, all their staff, all the booksellers are out for the entire weekend. Mm-hmm. And then we have a, have a bookshop in every single Yeah, event. which is quite unusual, I think. Lots of literary festivals have a central bookstore and we just think it's really important that if you've been really engaged by an event you can straight away get your book signed to have a chat with an author rather than you know I think I think if you leave an event you possibly might not buy that book you might just go online to buy it whereas we've got this direct link between the bookseller and the event which I think is great so have you seen things change over the past 10 years oh ever such a lot I think our audience has got much younger and that's been fantastic and that's because of the programming but word of mouth I think you know the Twitter and Instagram and Facebook have grown our audience way beyond anything we could have thought. You know, we've never had to do any advertising. It's all kind of word of mouth. And I suppose, well, it's just been easier to get guests. I mean, in year one, you know, I did. I just phoned up and asked if people would come and very gratifyingly they said yes. But I think these days there, there are authors who really want to come and appear at our festival because they talk to a different audience here. So much broader age, um, much more diverse audience. So that's changed. What else has changed? What else has changed? It's got bigger. Oh, it's got much bigger. <laughs> so basically, it's got bigger. We're yeah. looking at now... Oh, well, so the festival in 2019, there are 81 events over the weekend. It's the first weekend in June. 81 yep. events. Yeah. Nine venues. We've had up to 12 authors. venues, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 200 authors. And so it's a, it's a lot of... And it's not just in one place, it's all around in different community spaces. So Mm. there's a lot of ferrying. There is a lot of ferrying. So about five years ago, five or six years ago, we realised we didn't have one central kind of community space, do you remember, at the front of the town hall? Yeah. So we had the brainwave to set up what we call the Budvar tent. It is sponsored by our friends at Budvar. Soft drinks are available. And we put on a free music programme over the whole weekend. So great local bands, bits of spoken word, all that kind of stuff. And what I noticed year on year is that people walking by, who've never been to a literary festival before, would come to the Budvar tent year one, pick up a programme, see what it was all about. Then they'd start to go to literary events. So it was really nice how that kind of snowballed into the community. And it is not, I mean, it is... It is not what you expect from any kind of stuffy literary festival, is it? It's kind of really relaxed, great vibe. And so I think watching people come to the festival who never would have come before is brilliant. That's that's been amazing. So obviously the word community keeps coming up. Yes, yes, yes. So um, a few of the community projects, you've been working very closely with the community as outreach from the Lit Fest. Yeah. So... Tell us a bit about that wonderful project you did with Stoke Newington School oh, and the teenagers. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, we've done a couple of things. So you organised that great um, hip-hop Shakespeare event where we, we took Hip-Hop Shakespeare Company into mm-hmm. the school and they learnt about Shakespeare through rap, which is fantastic. And we did a lovely project with a couple of storytelling workshop people. Kurdish and Turkish girls, in particular, get quite overlooked in the school system and they were a kind of priority group for the teacher we were working with. So we put two storytellers in for a series of workshops. We invited their mothers in in week one and asked them to bring an object that meant something to them. So someone brought in a beautiful hair comb, someone else brought in a photo, and they talked to their daughters about why these objects meant so much. And then the following week, the daughters came back in and wrote stories about them. So that was a lovely project that happened in the school. And we also did that in a Kurdish centre down in Dalston. And we generated the most fantastic, very, very moving work from people who never had their stories told before. And it was wonderful. We created a Kurdish and Turkish anthology. And a piece from that 
was used by Claire Armitstead, who's the literary editor at The Guardian, in a book she was doing about um, two Londons and how all the people in London coexist. So it was lovely that the work we generated in these workshops had made it through to this anthology that tells a whole new story about London. So that kind of work we love doing. So obviously, yes, this year would have been year 10, but things got it in the way. It would have been year 10, yes. And main literature festivals have decided to do virtual events. Yeah. And you decided not to. Yeah, we looked at it, and there are a couple of reasons we didn't. Number one, our festival's all about kind of live events and community. And I think there have been the most fantastic innovations in getting authors in front of virtual audiences. Um, You know, recently they've been doing little signing sessions at the end of virtual events. But to be honest, we don't have a large infrastructure, so we're all volunteers. And we didn't have a budget to be able for us to look at that properly, if that makes sense. So we thought, we'll have this year off. Um, we'll see what happens we'll see what other people do with a view and I think that you know the consensus now is that there'll always be a digital part to it moving forward and I think that's great but we thought we'd have a year off it was nice and it was really nice after 10 years (laughs) it was nice to get May back wasn't it it was lovely to get May back but next year back with vengeance yeah hopefully fingers crossed I mean I think we're all I know quite a few literary festival organisers now and we're all kind of waiting to see but very much optimistic that this time next year, or certainly in June next year, we'll be able to do live events again and in do, some form. And do you think it will change the nature of the festival, this whole experience? I think people will really want to do live events again. Yeah. I think digital's been great, but you don't get the atmosphere. It's not a festival experience. So I think festivals have changed in a positive way because we've had to look at connecting with new audiences and I think that's always great and be more accessible via the digital route more accessible via the digital route I think we'll do more community outreach work because we might not be able to get as many people into venues so I think what happens around the festival might become more important but I think you know when, when we cancelled the festival I was just overwhelmed by the people who were genuinely upset and devastated that it wasn't happening and I think that this time next year we'll all be desperate to get back into that kind of party spirit absolutely Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Do follow Stoke Newton Literature Festival on Twitter, so at Stokey Litfest. Um, and Instagram. And Instagram, which is at Stokey Litfest. It's as at well. Stokey Litfest. It's very simple. Yeah. It's very, very simple. <laughs> Otherwise, we forget it. Very true. Very true. Thank you. Next up is the lovely Sophie McDonald to take you behind the scenes on working as a designer in the publishing industry. Hi everyone, my name is Sophie McDonnell and I am a designer for Bonnier Books UK. Thank you so much for having me on this episode. Today I'm going to talk a little bit about being a book designer, how I got into book design and just some of the day-to-day activities that we get up to. So I've been in publishing for two years now and I work across adult fiction, adult non-fiction and of course children's fiction which includes the imprints Piccadilly Press and Hockey Books. So how did I become a book designer? I actually sort of fell into book design by complete accident. I was studying graphic communication and typography at the University of Reading. And it was in my second year, I think, we had a what they call a live brief. So a real brief by a real company with the publisher OUP. So we had to design two covers, front, back and spine, for their children's classic series. So we were given Pride and Prejudice and Kidnapped. And alongside it being my favourite project of the year, 
and one of my favourite projects of the entire course, actually. My cover for Pride and Prejudice was chosen with the intent to have it actually published on a real book. So I got to work further with the design team at OUP to develop the cover. Sadly, it got dropped at the very last stage for an alternative approach. I still got paid, though, so it's all good. But yeah, it was such a fun project for me, given my love for books. I think that was the first instance where I realised that designing books is something that I could actually make a career out of. So after completing my undergraduate degree, I stayed at the University of Reading and I did an MA in book design. It's an absolutely brilliant course. Um, So here I covered the origins and the history of book design all around the world. Um, We learned about the theory behind book design practice and, of course, did a load of practical projects relating to book design. So all of this just kind of solidified my desire to get into publishing, really. So whilst writing my dissertation, I was applying literally for any design role that I could find and eventually I was offered a job to work as a junior designer at Bonnier Books UK which brings me to where I am now. So what does a book designer actually do? I mean the obvious answer is design books but there's quite a bit more that goes into designing a cover than people may actually think. So a cover is often a labour of love that has been developed, scrutinised, nitpicked in literally every possible conceivable way over about a two three month period so I start off by receiving a cover brief from the editor which will give me a basic plot overview character and location descriptions and anything else that might be important to the story from that I will develop a series of normally very terrible thumbnail sketches um, which I bring along to our weekly cover art meeting and we will narrow down basically as a wider team the direction and route that we want the cover to take so this This could mean typographic only approach, an illustrated approach or photographic or perhaps a bit of both. If a photographic approach is preferred, I would search stock image libraries and begin to create a series of cover visuals. Sometimes if you have a big enough budget, you get to do your own photo shoot, which is pretty fun. More often than not, though, with kids and YA books, an illustrated approach is preferred. So once this is chosen, I will search for a selection of illustrators. This can range from a couple to over six, eight illustrators that I'm showing per cover, which again, I bring to our cover meeting and we will narrow down to our preferred illustrator. Once I've done this, I have to get into contact with the illustrator and the agent. I've got to A, see if they're interested, B, negotiate pay, C, work out delivery dates. And then if all of this goes to plan, I will create a contract for them, send over a very detailed brief to get them started. And then I essentially art direct their work until we get it to an approved final art stage. As I said, we have weekly cover art meetings, so we try to bring along near enough every stage a cover takes from rough concepts all the way through to final art. And then once we have a final image, It doesn't end there. We have to decide on the typography we want to put on that image. So by that, I mean uh, the title and the author lettering and seeing what works best, because it really has to work in conjunction with the image to make a cohesive book design. After that, we will then have to fit on additional copies such as strapline quotes, sometimes roundels. So throughout this entire process, we have to make sure that both the in-house team and the author is happy with the cover every step of the way. Some covers are easier than others. I've had instances where a cover has gotten through to the final art stages only for it to either have to start again from scratch because it's not working 
or we've had major changes to the artwork because the plot or character has changed in the story. Sometimes a cover can get improved in-house, but the author doesn't like it, so you have to find a middle ground. And more often than not, your work, which you have lovingly laboured over all week, gets criticised in cover meetings. So it can be challenging at times, and you do have to learn to develop a thick skin and not take comments about your work too personally. It's kind of ironic. There's that saying of don't judge a book by its cover, which is sort of obsolete as a, as a book designer. It's kind of my entire job to get you to form a judgment of the book that I have designed. So for book designers, we have three main stages to a successful cover. The first is that it catches your eye amongst the shelves of hundreds of other books, which is no easy feat. Secondly, you pick it up or you, you click on the website to read the blurb and learn more about the book. And thirdly, you buy it, obviously. So aside from creating front covers, we're actually responsible for quite a few other jobs. One of the main things we do is it's called building the rest of the cover. So we basically have to design and make the spine and back cover, adding on blurb copy, creating ISBNs, amending blurb copy. It's a very long process. And eventually you keep going until it gets approved and signed off by all the teams. Another job we often have to take on is amending spine whips for reprints of books already published, or sometimes when we're publishing a book in other territories, such as South Africa or India, the format, or again, the spine width of the book will change. Sometimes with reprints, editors will want to add on additional quotes we've gotten by other authors or famous names. Sometimes sales will want to add on a roundel. And sometimes we will also collaborate with marketing and PR, and we will help create pitches or book proofs or material for campaigns. So it's really quite a, a varied job. I think one of the main things I've learned from being a book designer is just how integral being a team player is. It's not a solo job at all. I think it's quite easy to see a pretty book cover and um, not actually realise all the collaboration that has gone into making that book a reality. As book designers, we work really closely with um, with most of the teams, actually. So editorial, especially marketing, PR, sales. I think it's quite often easy to give the credit initially just to the illustrator or the designer of a book. But in reality, we are just a small little cog in the publishing machine that wouldn't really function at all um, without the work of everyone else around us. I think some of my favourite covers that I've worked on would include Midnight's Twins by Holly Race, uh, Clap When You Land by Elizabeth Acevedo, How It All Blew Up by Arvin Amadi, and of course the new Garfnick's Old Kingdom series, which has been so exciting to work on. My favourite parts of the job would probably include the teamwork and the collaboration that goes into making cover. It's really a really very social job, which I absolutely love and I thrive in that kind of environment. Another perk is finding the perfect illustrator for a project. There's so much talent out there and it's genuinely so exciting. Like you almost get butterflies when you know you found the right person and everyone else agrees with you for the job. I'm especially really lucky working on hockey. I get to work on a really diverse list of titles covering a very diverse list of topics by an extremely diverse list of authors. It's forever pushing not just my design boundaries, but also my reading boundaries, which I absolutely love. And lastly, I guess it's probably one of the perks for most designers um, is seeing the reaction of readers to your revealed cover. It's always quite a special feeling when someone says they love a cover that you know that you had a part in making. 
so yeah, it's quite humbling. If you are interested in getting into book design, I personally would recommend a graphic design course of some sort. It doesn't have to be a university at all, but it's pretty important to have a good handle on the Adobe design programs, especially InDesign and Photoshop, which I will use on a daily basis. Illustrator is also very useful. It's also super important to learn about and get a really good hold on typography because it's so essential to creating a finished book cover and it really needs to work alongside the art. I would say that if you don't view yourself as an illustrator or a good drawer, that does not matter in the slightest. It's literally why we have illustrators and why we commission them for jobs. Obviously, if you can draw or illustrate, then that is an added bonus. But please don't be put off from book design or any design job, in fact, just because you feel that you can't draw. I think lastly, I would recommend trying to get involved in book design projects in any way that you can. That could be asking your university or your college to involve uh, book design projects of sorts on the course. I think a lot of people see the future of graphic design as digital. So GIFs and apps and websites and motion graphics. But print design is not dead and it will never die. So it's still just as relevant to learn about. You can apply to get work experience or internships with design teams at publishing houses. I think now, especially with the global pandemic situation, lots of publishers are looking at setting up virtual placements. So you don't even have to worry about not being in London to apply and get involved, which is great. There are also lots of publishers that have annual cover design competitions. There's the Penguin Student Design Award, which is probably the most famous. We have our own, the Templar Design Awards. There are loads of others out there. A lot of them have cash prizes as well, which is great. Um, so yes, just have a Google and see what you can find. I think the more involved you can get early on, the better, and it will help set you up for getting into the publishing industry later in life. And I guess lastly, it has to be something that you genuinely love doing and are passionate about. Book design work isn't as well paid as digital design work but if you love it it's completely worth it in my opinion I'm literally in my dream job so yeah that's I think it from me today if anyone wants to see any of the work myself or my team do or if any of you have any questions about how to get into book design or anything book design related just drop us a message on either the department social on instagram at department of imagination i say department it's actually at d-e-p-t of imagination or you can message me on my personal social at sophie mcdesign thanks for having me Thank you so much for listening to the Hotkey podcast. We would love it if you could rate and subscribe and spread the word to all of those YA fans out there. You can find Hotkey Books at Hotkey Books YA and at Hotkey Books Teen on Twitter and Instagram and at Hotkey Books on Facebook and YouTube. If you're a Hotkey fan, you can also subscribe to the Hotkey mailing list. All of the details about that can be found in the pinned tweet on our Twitter profile. We would love to hear any suggestions or thoughts you have on the podcast. So if you have any questions or content you would like to hear featured, please do email marketing.childrens at bonniabooks.co.uk. Our audiobook is from The Magical Ray Bearer by Jordan Ifueko. For the kids scanning fairy tales for a hero with a face like theirs. And for the girls whose stories we compressed into pities and wonders, triumphs and cautions, without asking even once for their names. Part 1 Chapter 1 I shouldn't have been surprised that fairies exist. When elephants passed by in a lumbering sea beneath my window, 
Flecks of light whispered in the dust, dancing above the rows of tusks and leather. I leaned precariously over the sill, hoping to catch a fleck before a servant wrestled me inside. Shame, shame, Tarisai, my tutors fretted. What would the lady do if you fell? But I want to see the lights, I said. They are only Tsutsu sprites, a tutor herded me away from the window. Kind spirits, they guide lost elephants to watering holes. Or to lion parks, another tutor muttered, if they're feeling less kind. Magic, I soon learned, was capricious. When I squinted at the swollen trunk of our courtyard boab tree, a cheeky face appeared. Kia, kia, killer girl. It snickered before vanishing into the bark. I was seven when the man with cobbled fire wings found me. That night, I had decided to search Swana, the second largest realm in the Erit Empire, for my mother. I had crept past my snoring maids and tutors, stuffed a sack with mangoes and scaled our mud-brick wall. The moon hung high above the savannah when the Alagbato, the fairy, appeared in my path. The light glinted in his gold-flecked eyes, which slanted all the way to his dark temples. He seized the back of my garment, hoisting me up for examination. I wore a wrapper the colour of banana leaves, wound several times beneath my arms, leaving my shoulders bare. The alagbato watched me, amused as I punched and kicked the air. I'm in bed in Bekina House, I told myself. My heart pounded like a fist on a goatskin drum. I bit my cheek to prove I was dreaming. I'm wrapped in gauzy mosquito nets, and the servants are fanning me with palm fronds. I can smell breakfast in the kitchens, maize porridge, stewed matimba fish. But my cheek began to throb. I was not in bed. I was lost in the balmy Swanian grasslands, and this man was made of flames. Hello, Tarisai. His Sahara breath warmed my beaded braids. Just where do you think you are going? How do you know my name? I demanded. Were Alagbatos all-knowing, like M the storyteller? I am the one who gave it to you. I was too angry to absorb this reply. Did he have to be so bright? Even his hair shimmered, a luminous thicket around his narrow face. If our compound guards spotted him, I sighed. I had barely made it a mile into the savannah. Capture now would be humiliating. My tutors would lock me up again, and this time, every window in Burkina House would be nailed shut. I am not allowed to be touched, I snapped, clawing at the alagbato's grip. His skin felt smooth and hot, like clay left to harden in the sun. Not allowed? You are small enough to be carried. I am told human children need affection. Well, I am not human, I shot back in triumph. So put me down. Who told you that, little girl? No one, I admitted after a pause. But they all say it behind my back. I am not like other children. This was possibly a lie. The truth was I'd never seen other children, except in the market caravans that passed Bekina House from a distance. I would wave from my window until my arms grew sore, but they never waved back. The children would stare straight past me 
as if our compound, manor, orchard and houses enough to make a small village were invisible to anyone outside. Yes, the Alagbato agreed grimly. You are different. Would you like to see your mother, Tarisai? I stopped resisting at once, and my limbs hung limp as vines. Do you know where she is? My mother was like morning mist, here then gone, vanished in clouds of jasmine. My tutors bowed superstitiously whenever they passed her wood carving in my study. They called her the lady. I delighted in our resemblance, the same high cheekbones, full lips and fathomless black eyes. Her carving watched as my study brimmed with scholars from sun up to moonrise. They chattered in dialects from all twelve realms of the Eret Empire. Some faces were warm and dark like mine and the ladies. Others were pale as goat's milk, with eyes like water or russet and smelling of cardamom, or golden with hair that flowed like ink. The tutors plied me with riddles, shoving diagrams into my hands. Can she solve it? Try a different one. She'll have to do better than that. I didn't know what they were looking for. I only knew that once they found it, I would get to see the lady again. This will be the day, the tutors gushed when I excelled at my lessons. The lady will be so pleased. Then the palisade gates of Bekina House opened, and my mother glided inside, detached as a star. Her shoulders glowed like embers. Wax-dyed cloth clung to her torso like a second skin, patterns zigzagging in red, gold and black. She held me to her breast, a feeling so lovely I wept as she sang. Me, mine, she's me and she is mine. The lady never spoke when I demonstrated my skills. Sometimes she nodded as if to say, yes, perhaps, but in the end she always shook her head. No, not enough. I recited poems in eight different languages hurled darts into minuscule targets, solved gigantic logic puzzles on the floor, but each time it was a no, no, and no again. Then she vanished in that haze of heady perfume. At age five, I had begun to sleepwalk, padding barefoot through the smooth plaster halls of our manor. I would peer in each room, walking and whimpering for my mother until a servant carried me back to bed. They were always careful never to touch my skin. I cannot find your mother, the Alagbato told me the night of my attempted escape. But I can show you a memory. Not in my head, he dodged my attempt to seize his face. I never store secrets on my person. The lady had forbidden people from touching me for a reason. I could steal the story of almost anything. A comb, a spare, a person. I touched something and knew where it had been a moment before. I saw with their eyes if they had eyes, sighed with their lungs, felt what their hearts had suffered. If I held on long enough, I could see a person's memories for months, even years. Only the lady was immune to my gift. I knew every story in Bekina House, except hers. You will have to take my memory from the place where it happened, said the Alagbato setting me lightly in the tall grass. Come, it is not far. He offered a bony hand, but I hesitated. You are a stranger, I said. 
Are you sure? He asked, and I felt an odd sensation of peering into a mirror. He smiled, lips pursed like a meerkat's. If it makes you feel any better, my name is Melu, and thanks to that woman, I am not an alagbato. His smile soured into a grimace. Not anymore. Fear rose in my belly like smoke from a culpit, but I silenced my worries. Do you want to find the lady or not? I picked up my sack from which most of the mangoes had fallen and took Melu's hand. Though gentle, his grip felt hard around mine, as though his muscles were made of bronze. An emerald-studded cuff glinted on his forearm, and when I grazed the cuff by accident, it seared me. Careful, he murmured. We walked to a clearing hedged in acacia trees. Herons flapped above a vast still pool. The air hung with lilies and violets, and the brush rustled and shushed in a wordless lullaby. Is this where you live? I asked in awe. In a manner of speaking, he said. It was beautiful for the first few thousand days. After that, it grew tedious. I blinked up at him in confusion, but he did not explain. He only pointed to the soft red earth. The story is here. Cautiously, I pressed my ear to the ground. I'd never tried to take the memory of any place larger than my bedroom. A familiar heat flushed my face and hands as my mind stole into the dirt, latching onto whatever memory was strongest. The winged man and the flock of herons disappeared. The clearing is younger now, with fewer brush and acacia trees. It is daytime in this memory, and the amber pool is clear, free of fish and mayflies. My heart skips a beat. The lady, my lady, reclines on a rock by the water. The sun makes a mosaic of her reflection on the pool's surface, distorting her face, rippling her cloud of midnight hair. Her wrapper is frayed, and her sandals are worn to the soles. I worry, wondering, what were you running from, mother? The lady dips an emerald cuff into the water. She murmurs over the jewel, kissing it tenderly, and the emerald glows and fades. Then she sets the cuff down and calls out, Melu! My mother tastes the word on her full lips, drawing out the syllables like a song. Melu, my dear, won't you come out and play? The clearing is silent. The lady laughs, a deep throaty sound. The seers say that the Alagbatos dislike humans. Some doubt you even exist. Great Melu, guardian of Swana, but I think you do here. She produces a green vial from her pocket and sips it precariously towards the pool. I think you hear just fine. A hot wind rushes into the clearing, swirling up dirt and clay into a tall, lean man. His wings smolder cobalt blue like a young fire, but his voice is frost cold. Stop. I would tell you my name, the lady tells him. But, as you know, my father never gave me one. She pauses, still dangling the vial over the pool. 
How quickly does Abiku blood spread through earth and water, Melu? How much would poison every living thing within a fifty-mile radius? Two drops? Three? Don't, Melu barks. Wait, the lady points to the emerald cuff. Melu's features contort with defeat. Stone-jawed, he picks up the cuff and snaps it on his forearm. If I have done that right, says the lady, you are no longer Swanas Alagbato. You are my Eru, my Jin. Three wishes, Melu spits, and I am bound to this grassland until your wishes are complete. How convenient, the lady sits thoughtfully dangling her muscular brown legs in the water. Melu, I wish for a stronghold that no one may see or hear unless I desire it. A place, my friends, and I will always be safe. A place befitting royalty. That is my first command. Melu blinks. It is done. Where? A mile from here, Melu points and the newly blossomed plastered walls of Burkina House shimmer in the distance. The lady glows with pleasure. Now, she breathes, I wish for Olubade's death. Not allowed, Melu snaps. Life and death are beyond my power, especially that life. Even fairies may not kill a ray-bearer. The lady's mouth hardens, then relaxes. I thought that might be the case, she says. Fine. I wish for a child who will do, think and feel as I tell it. An extension of myself. A gifted child sure to stand out in a contest of talent. This is my second command. Not allowed, Melu intones again. I cannot force a human to love or hate. You may not own a child as you own an Eru. Can't I? The lady steeples her fingers in thought. A smile spreads across her face and her teeth are coldly white. What if, she says, my child was an Eru? What if my child was yours? Melu grows as rigid as a tree in dry season. Such a union would go against nature. You are human, not of my kind. You ask for an abomination. Oh no, Melu. The lady's brilliant black eyes dance over the Eru's horrified ones. I command that abomination. They performed a ritual then, one I didn't understand at seven years old. It looked painful, the way his body folded over hers in the grass. Two species never meant to unite dissimilar as flesh against metal. But the memory told me that nine months later, my infant cries rang through Bekina House, and the lady's third ungranted wish, her abomination, ran through my veins. Do you understand now? Melu muttered, over my drowsy form once the memory had run its course. Until you grant her third wish, neither you nor I will be free. He touched my forehead with a long, slender finger, 
I bargained with the lady for the privilege of naming you Tarisai. It is a Swana name. Behold what is coming. Your soul is hers for now, but your name, I insisted, must be your own. He sounded far away. Stealing the lady's story had exhausted me. I barely sensed Melu cradle me in his narrow arms, saw through the night and deposit me back at the palisaded gates of Bekina House. He whispered, I've been bound to this savannah for seven years. For my sake, I hope that woman claims her wish. But for your sake, daughter, I hope that day never comes. Then servants clambered towards the gates and Melu was gone. A dozen anxious hands put me to bed and syrupy voices soothed me when I babbled about Melu the next day. It was all a dream, the tutor said, but their dilated pupils and her smiles told a different story. My adventure had confirmed their most sinister suspicions. My mother was the devil, and I her puppet demon. <laughs>